Welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode 21, an interview with Max Bolt by Kevin Yildirim. Hi, I'm Kevin Yildirim, and I'm sitting here at the Department of Social Anthropology in Cambridge with Dr. Max Bolt, who's visiting from the University of Birmingham, where he's reader in Anthropology and African Studies. Max is the author of a 2015 book called Zimbabwe's Migrants and South Africa's Border Farms, The Roots of Impermanence, and he's in Cambridge to give a talk entitled Apartheid's Legal Shadows, State Process, Home Ownership, and the Uncertainties of Inheritance in Urban South Africa. Max, thanks very much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. So I'm wondering, Max, um, could you give us an overview of the current research project that you're um, in Cambridge to talk about? Yes. So uh, this is research based in Johannesburg in, in South Africa, um, and it's on broadly deceased estates. In other words, uh, inheritance, but inheritance as it is mediated by uh, state institutions, legal administration, and the whole ecosystem of uh, expertise, advice, support um, that is built around that. So I spent a lot of time shadowing uh, state officials as they administered deceased estates, which of course is the state's category for inheritance, uh, for what has passed on, um, as they uh, processed people's cases, as they heard people's disputes, um, as they gave guidance and so on, but I also tracked disputes, uh, sitting with lawyers, uh, sitting in local community advice offices um, in Johannesburg's townships. Um, I attended courts uh, and followed uh, matters there. And of course, I also uh, interviewed and worked uh, with uh, residents of South Africa, of, of Johannesburg's uh, townships themselves. So really, it was trying to understand the whole landscape of uh, inheritance as a kind of state-mediated field in this metropolitan setting. So people who know your work um, previously will be familiar with the rural setting of your previous ethnographic work. And this sounds like a very urban-based project. Was this a conscious decision you made to change the environment in which you're working? Or did you, in other words, just kind of follow um, your ethnographic subjects um, as they went through these legal processes in cities? No, no, this was very much a new project. Um, The continuities are thematic rather than following particular people. Uh, So uh, I know that we'll we'll talk about the the farm project in a moment, uh, but one of the things that really uh, struck me there was the dramatic divergence in future life chances among different constituencies on the farms. So you have very wealthy white farmers who own the land who, okay, are undergoing a period of turbulence after apartheid and with market liberalisation and changes in the law and so on, Um, But ultimately, these are very wealthy people who are trying to position their children uh, for good lives and good careers, Uh, having sons go off to Belgium for work experience or go off to university so that they can come back and uh, run these giant, quite complex organisations that are farms, versus workers themselves, who in many cases had built up over decades middle-class lives with the expectations for children that came with that, and then these totally dropped away with the Zimbabwean crisis. Uh, and so producing, if not a presentism, then very short horizons for thinking about what the life chances of the next generation would, 
look like. So I wanted to look at what in less extreme circumstances um, does life, uh, do, does class reproduction look like? Um, and I wanted to look at a really underexplored area, which is that of property and the administration of property. So not just how people pass stuff on, but how this works in relation to a large state like South Africa's. And then the urban setting presented itself uh, as interesting, partly as a contrast with a rural one, but partly also for methodological reasons, because you have a critical mass of institutions close together and very obviously in a working network with each other uh, in a way that you don't have in more marginal parts of South Africa, where if people are going to engage with large state institutions, they're often travelling a very long way from where they initially are. Johannesburg is a setting where the whole ecosystem that I've already described is really not particularly widely distributed. And this also means that the social connections between these different uh, institutional arrangements are quite robust and you can follow them. Right. And I would like to pick up on the temporality aspect of, of what you're talking about with this new research. So you, you write that the legal parameters that inform inheritance law are seen as anachronistic by officials in post-apartheid South Africa. And that's interesting because we might think of inheritance law as being one sphere of legal production that might recognize um, the rights and desires and precedents of previous generations. Um, of course, in South Africa, the legacy of apartheid makes this a much more complex um, issue. So I'd like to ask, why is it that officials see inheritance law as anachronistic in South Africa? And if this is a view that's held by the public as well, generally speaking, what's stopping officials from changing or somehow updating inheritance law? Mm. So yes, um, inheritance law is seen as rigid in a somewhat outdated way. Um, so it's worth saying at this point that this is not uniformly true across South Africa's legal system, in other words, in other areas of legislation. So uh, there are areas of law where, for example, judges have read customary norms uh, into interpretations of the law and therefore have significantly changed what it does or its parameters. Um, in South Africa, since apartheid, custom is protected um, and this is interpreted quite broadly. It doesn't mean decisions made under chiefs. Uh, the Constitutional Court means the living law. It means norms fairly broadly conceived where people can then come and try and convince a court that this is indeed a shared norm with a kind of legal force. When it comes to inheritance, though, um, something somewhat more uh, bifurcated pertained. So under apartheid, black people were doubly excluded from inheritance in the sense that the minority of the population experienced it. First of all, um, black people couldn't own real estate. So in urban areas, uh, black homes were rentals. They were passed on through permits, called family permits, that listed all members of the family. In the shadow of this kind of rental system grew a kind of uh, an urban customary idea that, fam that houses were indeed family houses, that they were collective. And of course, this was never really tested because no one owned them. Well, the state owned them, but no one who lived in them owned them. Um, this then 
started to become something significantly different when, towards the end of apartheid, these houses were devolved en masse to their long-term tenants. So on the positive side, this meant for families, this will be in our name. On the negative side, this was a fairly rigid interpretation of property law that was exclusive and exclusionary. So there were misunderstandings at this point. Um, families would send a custodian off to get title on behalf of everybody, and they would come back with sole owner. And in the short term, no one would be any the wiser. 20 years later, that person dies, and the family realises this was the only owner. Then they run into the second big change, which is in inheritance law specifically as opposed to property law. Previously, black people in South Africa had been uh, administered when it came to inheritance by something called the Black Administration Act. So racially separate law that was a kind of crude approximation of African custom that basically said the oldest male inherits, male primogeniture. This was struck down after apartheid by the Constitutional Court that said, well, this is obviously inequitable under the Constitution in gender terms. And it was one of uh, a larger number of decisions that kind of knocked down bits of the Black Administration Act until it was essentially defunct. But the court decided they were faced with the problem, what are we going to do with custom? So you, at the moment, custom was kind of there in this racially separate and racist law in this kind of crudely approximated way. If you're going to get rid of it, what are you going to do with customary notions as they more broadly exist? The dissenting judgment said, well, we really need to kind of develop custom here. We need to make space for it as long as it is not inequitable in gender terms. The majority of the court, though, said, no, this isn't really our job here. It's a bit too complicated. This requires legislation. In the meantime, everybody should be administered by the law that previously black people were excluded from, which had a really rigid idea of the nuclear family, right? So, survi uh, so surviving spouse inherits first, then children, then, if none of those are in the picture, parents, and finally, siblings, if no one else is around, none of the above. Uh, which is very different from the way that people had understood the collective family house in that broadly entitlement was shared among siblings who were the children of an earlier patriarch within a kind of patrilineal understanding, right? So this is, it's a complicated situation, but broadly what you ended up having was a pretty dichotomized reading of the landscape. On the one hand, a version of the law that was seen as quite restrictive, so property law that didn't allow for anything really collective. Yes, okay, you could put more people on the title deed, but it was just multiplying individualised ownership, essentially, rather than saying, no, this is the families. And then inheritance law that was for the nuclear family. In the shadow of all that uh, emerged a set of ideas that were understood as powerfully customary. What's then interesting with how officials read this is, and this is a younger generation of officials who came into the system since the end of apartheid. This is not the old white Afrikaners who used to run the state. These are often black officials who have direct experience of the kind of customary understandings that we're talking about here. And so they're stuck in this weird position where the law is very restrictive and is read by most people to be very white. So they're upholding this as their job. That's what they're using to administer deceased estates. But they're also saying, well, this is really unsatisfactory. 
as to why they don't do anything about it, officials can't change the law, right? Um, I mean, very high-level um, figures within administrations who are ministers, so they're politicians, can change the regulations, which is one level of kind of sub-law, but legislation itself, of course, would have to go through Parliament. Mm-hmm. Judges can change interpretations, but even there, when you're talking about administrative law, this is really about changing acts. And so officials are kind of in the shadow of this. And where they're positioned does something quite odd to the kind of the, the tenor of state administration. Uh, we kind of assume from a lot of the anthropology of the state that the state is ultimately quite confident and its officials are relatively confident about its own rules. But here you've got officials who are stuck in between positions that are divergent and themselves quite uncomfortable for them. The law which they've been educated in, so these inheritance officials are legally trained, but which they see deep problems with, and a version of custom which they see the reality of from personal experience and from just dealing with fights all day, but where they also see how custom A can blur into inequitable gender situations because, in fact, for a lot of people it is supposed to be men first. And secondly, that these often represent idealisations of incredibly complicated family dynamics. So I wanted to pick up on um, one aspect of the bureaucratic process that you mentioned um, with these homeowner deeds and kind of efforts to um, institutionalize um, people's rights to homeownership. And it made me think of your previous work with migrant workers on um, the border farm, um, where you say that documents were used as a way of constructing the formal workforce. And so now you're looking at inheritance and property rights in urban South Africa, um, and these are areas of legal production that presumably follow a kind of paper trail as well. So I'm wondering if you could speak about how you came um, to see the role of documents in your new work and whether the work that you did previously on documents in the border farm played some role in the way you see the force or the agency of documents in urban South Africa. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, in fact, the the, uh, causality was kind of two-way. Clearly, an interest in how documentation works uh, in a former workforce off on South Africa's margins um, produced a particular kind of sensitivity to, as you say, these chains of documentation in inheritance. And inheritance in South Africa, and I'm sure elsewhere, this is incredibly important because the system is not very system-like. It is quite fragmented. It doesn't really connect up. But what does connect up is a chain of documentation. Certain documents enable you to convert into other documents, and those can get you somewhere. Um, but a kind of top-down blueprint view of the system simply doesn't work. So in brief, in the inheritance um, case, the reason for this is because the, the big backstop, the thing that is supposed to make the system a system, is that you can always appeal something to a high-level court. But most people can't. And therefore you've got bits that, essentially for a lot of people, uh, have giant cracks between them that people are just waiting to fall into. But it's not as straightforward as the a sensitivity was developed by work on the farm that I then brought into inheritance. Um, actually, the so that piece that you're referring to about um, the, the farm was one of the later things that I wrote. And I'd already started thinking about inheritance. 
And what's really wonderful about these points of overlap where you're finishing writing one project but you've begun another one is that you can have this kind of two-way flow of ideas. And so I'd already started thinking about inheritance that had, from the very beginning was very document heavy actually because the methodologically one of the ways I came into it was by I'd been doing some collaborative work with historians on deceased estates files as sources for understanding class reproduction and I wanted to do an ethnographic project that spoke to that uh, so that you know you could you could think about these the documents you're dealing with ethnographically as having these long, uh, histories in terms of form and so on, but you can also then read the archive ethnographically. And then this started getting me thinking, well, you can read the farm totally differently as well. So this documentation emphasis is not in the book about the farm, for example. Um, it's actually a kind of a sensitivity that had come through thinking more carefully about the documentary state that ma made me think, okay, we keep referring to these formal workforces as formal, and I'd written about informality as the kind of outside of that, but what actually is formal about a formal workforce in the end? And then that got me thinking about how documents ultimately make workers workers in a sort of formal, officially recognised sense. So I find this idea of state officials potentially rubber stamping documents, initiating state processes that really, in effect, they may find anachronistic or they may, may not agree with. I find this fascinating. And um, maybe... As a last question, I wanted to ask, in um, the work that you did about the farm, you mentioned that white farmers' control of their land would, in a sense, help mediate the relationship between the state and the workforce. You mentioned previously the existence of black judges in the urban case that you're working on right now. I'm wondering, how else does race mediate, in this instance, the imposition of inheritance law with the members of the general public who are looking to somehow use this law to their own ends, whether that be inheritance or property rights more generally. Yeah. So what is interesting is when you look at um, the system as it currently is and the kinds of disputes that run through it, you actually have all sorts of points where there is clear recognition that these family houses are the in social terms exist, as in outside of the narrow terms of the state, so individualised property and nuclear families as the basis of inheritance, that there are these collectively held family houses that are shared between siblings, um, that where entitlement involves the ancestors and the unborn, and where, fittingly, often the title deeds are a couple of generations out of date. And fittingly, because that means that the ancestor's on the deeds. So it, it's a way of not having to kind of deal with the terms of administration, but it's also it also sort of makes a, a certain kind of conceptual sense. So you have administrators sitting in um, the government offices who understand this uh, and understand that when people are coming to them, it's often because fights have boiled over. So when, broadly speaking, people can agree on the house as a collective entity and who will control it and who gets to live in it, people will often try and stay away from the state. It's the fights that take them to the state, right? But where fights can't be contained by the government office either, they'll end up in court. Again, there are strong disincentives. It's expensive. You've got to take lots of time off work. Courts adjourn perpetually. But when you look at how courts deal with this, regardless of whether judges are black or white, you see... 
attempts to accommodate. There's been a recent spate of uh, court decisions, uh, in this case under a white judge in Johannesburg, basically make it very clear in the judgment that the family house is socially real and that these are shared norms that need to be accounted for. But the law is not only um, uh, anachronistic in the sense that it's essentially an, an extension of some rather narrow principles from an earlier era, uh, it's also very rigid. And so essentially what judges do is bounce houses back to administration and they say, okay, administrators have another look at who should be getting this house. And they can't really do a huge amount beyond that because administrative law is set so rigidly. The Constitutional Court is then something else. This is dealing with the big principles of law. Um, and there is the case that I, I was talking about earlier, where you have these, you, you had in the past this case, this possibility of developing custom rather than what, in the view of this minority opinion, who was a black judge, um, was the kind of use of uh, civil law to kind of steamroller custom. So it's not quite so straightforward as race plays out because you have black figures in authority. Uh, what you've had is a substantial shift in the ethos uh, within the way the state is run and a fairly wide understanding that what has been inherited from the past isn't good enough. But so far, within very complicated state processes, not much has been done about it. Um, so race is all over the picture. Um, it's all over the, this from below, where civil law is, being, is re routinely read as white law. It's racialized in bureaucratic administration, where a lot of administrators would agree with that assessment. Um, and it's racialized in the ways that legal decisions have to get made and the way that the law needs interpreting, because you've got this really awkward situation precisely that deracializing the law meant extending civil law that is often read as being built on white principles um, in order to remove the space for the apartheid's racist interpretation of custom by having a special black administration act. You see what I mean? So you had, you, and this, is, this speaks to broader themes within South Africa's transition, you had a highly racialized system that was deracialized often simply by extending what used to be for the minority. In other words, getting rid of the racist bits of legislation, but also removing the, removing the possibility of diverse norms uh, within the codes as they pertain. Great. Well, Max Bolt, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure.